this week, I sat with a student to read this week's Torah portion. And after studying Genesis together with its many examples of people behaving badly, we turned to Exodus and then Leviticus and then this week Numbers and read even more examples of people behaving badly. And this time, this student said, it really seems like God is behaving badly too. And I had to agree, no one gets off easy in Torah, not even God. But this I explained to him, I guess, as much to myself, is kind of the fun of it. Even God is anthropomorphized in the text as a being with feelings, allowing us to see our own feelings refracted, teaching us perhaps an emotional lesson. And Parshat Shalach opens a door to exactly that. The text opens, as you may know, with the Israelites encamped in the wilderness of Paran, just outside the borders of the Promised Land. They can practically see it. And God tells Moses to send 12 men to scout out the land. After 40 days, the men come back with evidence, pomegranates and giant clusters of grapes, proving that the land is fertile and indeed flows with milk and honey. But, they explain, there is a small problem, maybe even a giant problem, because the people who inhabit the land are giants whom the Israelites will never be able to conquer. What follows is exactly what you would expect. The people freak out. They lose faith in God. God prepares to destroy them. Moses intercedes. God decides not to kill them, but to punish them in a different way. It's all very predictable, actually. And you, I'm guessing, knew this story anyway. On account of their lack of faith, God forbids the adult Israelite population to enter the promised land and says that only their children will enter the land that they themselves have rejected. And naturally, the people become distraught. Reading this famous story, the rabbis Rashi and Sforno argue that the people's punishment is designed to teach them one final time not to counteract God's will. But Maimonides ups the ante. Not only did the people need to learn to obey God, he explains, but it was actually always God's plan to prevent them from entering the promised land. God never actually intended for this group of wanderers to arrive at their destination. Many classical sages argue that the people were too badly bruised by their trauma in Egypt to really be equipped to enter the land, but Maimonides says explicitly in his Guide for the Perplexed, that God used what he calls a gracious ruse to cause the people to wander perplexedly in the desert until people were born who were not accustomed to humiliation and servitude. In other words, God always wanted to forbid the generation who left Egypt from reaching the Promised Land. The whole drama of the spies was just a ruse or a ploy so that God could achieve this end without saying so outright. It's kind of a weird thing. And if you wonder why Christian readers have historically viewed the God of what they call the Old Testament as an angry God, that's a word, that's a phrase we hear sometimes from our Christian friends, here's a good explanation. God, God is petty and vindictive in this reading, but also avoidant. <laughs> God just won't come right out and say what God wants. And instead, God plays games with the people. 
allowing them to think that their punishment was not always preordained and that it is, in fact, their fault. But perhaps we can be more charitable to this God. Perhaps we can relate to the idea that God doesn't want to hurt the people's feelings, knowing that they want to reach the land and preferring to let them fantasize about their future. Maybe God just wants to protect them from knowing their fate until the last minute. But if that's what's happening, it doesn't really work out for anyone. Professor Chaim Kreisel of Ben-Gurion University teaches that God has behaved like this before, it turns out. He points us to further textual evidence of God's avoidance and indirect communication by way of the Midrash Tanchuma. Starting with Psalm 66, which says, come and see the works of God, with the familiar phrase, Nora alila al adam, terrible in deeds to human beings. That's the proof text that they're using. The rabbis of the Midrash wonder, where else is God terrible in deeds to human beings? Where else does God make matters worse for people by taking a circuitous path instead of speaking directly? Rabbi Barachia of the Midrash explains that God created the angel of death on the first day of creation, and of course has a proof text to explain that, before Adam and Eve ate from the fruit that led to their mortality. This implies that it was always God's plan to condemn humans to finitude, to mortality. But God came up with a whole story about a forbidden fruit that led to mortality as if that would somehow soften the blow. The rabbis then also offer another example from Torah, that the story of Joseph and his jealous brothers and all the moral quandaries in which they found themselves, all of that familiar strife that we know from Genesis, was just a pretext for God to move the plot along, the Midrash explains, because God couldn't run, come right out and say that the, that the Hebrews were destined to go to Egypt and become enslaved. Because God couldn't say that, God invented what God thought was going to be a sweeter pill to swallow until it wasn't. And the rabbis go on and on like this and offer a number of compelling other examples and then finally offer a parable to clarify their characterization of God. And there, these rabbis compare God to a man who wants to give his wife a divorce and writes a get divorce document before coming home one day. When he arrives home, his wife pours him a glass of tea at which point the man complains that the tea is lukewarm. And for this reason, he says he wants a divorce. <laughs> to her credit, the wife argues, seeing the get in his hands, that he wanted a divorce all along, and he could have just said so. And we all might agree. God, in this scenario, is the indirect husband, secretly holding a get in his hands without the courage to tell it like it is. These readings suggest that God seems unwilling to accept the fact of God's own control. God is literally the most in control. That's like the point of God. <laughs> but as we read again in this Parsha as elsewhere, God is erech apayim verav chesed, slow to anger and abounding in kindness. In other words, God is in conflict with God's self, controlling yet compassionate, wanting love from the people, but knowing that, that the people aren't going to like what God needs from them, which leads God to speak indirectly. 
At this point, it's no wonder that the people needed prophets, insightful commentators who could translate the words of a God who just refuses to be forthcoming. What we can learn from these readings isn't just that the character of God in the Torah is spiteful and angry. Rather, when we read God struggling with God's power, we get a new way to understand our own power as human beings. First, we can identify the impulse within ourselves to protect people from our power. Sometimes when we're in control, we find ourselves uncomfortable with the various responsibilities we hold. And, like God, we might not want to be direct when those responsibilities clash with our desire to love and to be loved. In these moments, we might learn that being indirect doesn't achieve what we think it might. The pain of a direct rebuke or disappointment might actually be better than the protracted agony of giving bad news in a roundabout way or at the last minute. Yet even when we know this, so many of us avoid confrontation anyway. Ultimately, when we focus on how another person will react, we ignore our own humanity, our fallibility, our impotence in any given situation. It's hard to accept that we can't control how another person will feel, but these readings of God in this Parsha teach us that we almost certainly cannot. Even God cannot, or does not anyway. Though we might prefer to read a story in which God has an easy time with the power God holds, it's far richer for us as readers to see a God in conflict between power and love or compassion. Because inevitably, each of us finds ourselves in that position at some point, maybe frequently, caught between needing to do something for ourselves and not wanting to hurt the people we love who might not want us to do that thing. And though the example of God in this scenario teaches us what not to do, that, I think, is the point. We aren't God. And when we think we're in control, that may be exactly what we are not. Shabbat Shalom. <laughs>